Happy Sabbath. I bring you greetings from your sister church, the Ukaipa Seventh-day Adventist Church. I have to say that in the last three and a half years that I've been here, it's been a joy to be at Ukaipa, and it's been a joy and privilege to be able to partner with you folks here at Calamesa, at Mesa Grande, and in outreach projects to the community. I've really appreciated your church, your church family, and I've enjoyed um, building relationships with your pastoral staff and working together. Um, so thank you for all you do and who you are. And I look forward to us continuing to partner together for God's kingdom here in this area. Every December, churches and individuals face a unique loss. And this last December, the same thing happened in North Carolina and Illinois and England. Jesus went missing. Jesus went missing. Sometimes guards retrieved Jesus and were able to bring him back, like in 2009 in Santa Clarita. Sometimes, like in Houston at the county courthouse, they find Jesus, but it's the wrong baby Jesus. It doesn't fit with the nativity that it got stolen from. Jesus goes missing. This is not a unique phenomena to December nativity scenes. Jesus went missing. Sometimes Jesus goes missing, and this morning we're going to look at what to do when Jesus goes missing. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. His parents went to Jerusalem every year. This was their family tradition. But notice the end of the sentence, it says, at the feast of the Passover. This was not just Mary and Joseph's tradition. This was a larger family tradition, the family of the Israelites. And every year, all of Israel and all the Israelites from surrounding countries, from where they had immigrated to, they would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. They came to remember being freed from slavery in Egypt. So every year, Jesus' parents joined the wider, wider family of God to go and go to Jerusalem on this religious journey. 2 verse 42, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. For the Jews, the 12th year in one's life was the divide between childhood and adulthood. At the end of this year, a Jewish boy was confirmed as a son of the law. The Israelites back then understood something that uh, we understand today. 20th century uh, Jean Piaget would describe it as the shift from concrete thinking to abstract thinking. And that normally happens around age 11. Around age 11. Kids, we may still see them as kids, but they are now able to think and process abstractly as adults. Now, what they decide to do with God in this stage is very critical. George, George Barna, a church re researcher with the Barna Group, wrote a book called Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions. 
And he shares these stats with us with his, in his research. He surveyed Christians today and asked them, at what age did you accept Jesus as your Savior? At what age? Thir- 23% said when they were 22 to adult, 23%. 18 to 21, that's a critical time of life. 20, uh, sorry, only 13% at that age, said that was when they accepted Jesus as their Savior. Teen years, those are important years, right? 13 to 17. Of those surveyed, only 21% said that was when they accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. So what percentage does that leave us? Anybody do math in your head really quickly? 43%. 43% of Christians today that George Barna surveyed, said they accepted Christ when they were under 13 years old. In further research and studies, he looked at the probability of someone accepting Jesus as their Savior. From ages 5 to 12, the probability is 32% likelihood. During the teen years, only 4%. Once you get to be an adult, 6%. Probability. The Israelites understood that this was a critical time of life where kids were making decisions about what they would do with God and their church family, the people of God. So this year, Jesus was in the company with his family. As they went up to the Passover, as they went up to Jerusalem, the many throngs of pilgrims would be singing songs. These were called the songs or the psalms of ascent. And you'll see that in the book of Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent. And they were called that because literally it was a steep climb up to Jerusalem. So as they climbed, they sang these songs to encourage their hearts as they went to Jerusalem. And this is something like the view that Jesus would have seen for the first time as he came over the hills and looked at Jerusalem and the temple. As he went closer, he would have headed inside the temple and seen it for the first time. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us what happened for Jesus during those few days, but perhaps what happened afterwards will give us a clue. 2 verse 43. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. What was it that would make Jesus linger behind For the first time, Jesus would have seen priests in the temple performing their ministry. For the first time, Jesus would have seen those cute, fluffy, white, beautiful little lambs. For the first time, he would have seen them being taken to the temple. He would have seen them dying. He would have seen them on the altar of burnt offering being offered. He would have been there with his family as they talked about what happened in being freed from Egypt and how they put blood on the doorposts for their salvation. And as he was there and as his mission started to become clearer in his mind, as he lingered, it became clear. It started coming into focus from blurry into focus. Luke 2 verse 44 But supposing him to have been in the company, 
they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. There's a saying, assumption is the mother of all mistakes. Assumption. Supposing him to have been in the company. Assumption. They assumed that he was with them. Sadly, this is not a reality just for Mary and Joseph, but it's been a reality for God's people again and again and again. Assuming that God was with them, they went a day's journey. Once the Israelites took the ark into battle, assuming that would mean that God was with them. But it ended up that the ark got stolen and they lost the battle. They were defeated because they assumed. Paul, in the New Testament, assuming God was with him, he went to Damascus to persecute the Christians. But along the way on the road, there he was confronted by Jesus saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Assumptions. Assuming God is with you. It's easy for us to assume that God is with us as we go along on our religious journey to Jerusalem or back. After all, we're following the right rituals. We're following the tradition that we always knew to follow. We're, we're doing the right way. We're coming to church at 11. We're, we're following the rituals. Or, or maybe it's easy to us, us, for us to assume that God is with us because we're following the rules. We know what's right and what's wrong, and we're living that way. We're following the rules. Or maybe we assume God is with us because we have the right beliefs. Yeah, we keep the rituals, we follow the rules, but we know the right beliefs. We know the truth. We can show you in scripture what's truth. And so we assume that God is with us. Perhaps we assume that God is with us because of all the great relationships that we enjoy in the church as we go along on our religious journey. Mary and Joseph enjoying the company, the friends, the people, having a great time together, assuming that Jesus was with them. Assumptions. George Barna, in another nationwide random survey, he called 13-year-olds across the country. And he asked them if they considered themselves to be Christian. And guess what? 93% of them said yes. Then as he asked them more questions as part of this survey... He asked them who had made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Questions that indicated that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Getting to know him. 34%. So in that survey, 59% of all 13-year-olds were notional Christians. They said they're Christian, but they weren't committed to following Christ in any discernible way. They said they're on the religious journey. They keep the rituals. They follow the rules. They believe the right things. They know people and relationships. And yet, they didn't have a real growing relationship with Christ. Rituals, rules, right beliefs, relationships. Every religion has them. And they're good. We need them but they're not good enough. 
At some point or another, most of us get to the point where we realize that they're not good enough. Usually, it's in the dark at night. When we stop, we stop and we really need to know where Jesus is. We really need to know that he's with us. Perhaps you've had one of those dark moments in your life when your boss calls it, you in to his office and says, sorry, we have to let you go. When you studied really, really hard for that very, very important test and you failed it. When your spouse says that they're leaving. When someone you love very dearly is going through a very difficult illness and you're there with them and then you have to say goodbye. Perhaps you've been at that dark night when rituals and rules and right beliefs and even relationships just wasn't good enough. Luke 2, verse 45. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. When they didn't find him, they asked the question that you and I ask whenever we lose something. Where did I see it last? Mary and Joseph asked, where did we see Jesus last? And it was in Jerusalem. Where did you see Jesus last? When was your last experience with Jesus? Was it in prayer, just him and you? Through reading the scripture? Perhaps walking out in nature, meeting God there? Perhaps through worship? Perhaps through service? Where did you see Jesus last? Go back, go back to Jerusalem. In our worldwide Seventh-day Adventist church, we've been talking a lot lately about revival and reformation. Revival and reformation are not about making sure we're following the right rituals or keeping all the rules or have that everybody has the right beliefs or our, even our relationships are all corrected. Those are all important. But revival and reformation is about doing what Mary and Joseph did. It's about stopping, looking around, and asking the question, where's Jesus? Then it's about turning around and going back to where you saw him last. Revival and Reformation is about reorienting our lives and our communities around seeking Jesus and being part of his mission in the world. I was really excited last month in August, at the end of the month, we had a One Life retreat for the youth. And I know Pastor Feedy brought some youth. Anybody here that was up there? The One Life, I brought some youth from Ukaipa, and various youth came from all around the different churches in this area. And we came together for the sole purpose of getting to know Jesus better. We were asking the questions, where is Jesus in our theology? Where is Jesus in our mission? Where is Jesus in our personal life experience? Where is Jesus in our church? Jesus in everything that we do. 
We did this for the youth, but there's a, a larger movement called the One Project that is also seeking this out, seeking Jesus out in fresh new ways, seeking revival and reformation through, first of all, focusing on Jesus Christ and letting all, everything else follow from him, from being in a relationship with him. Most likely, in a day's journey, Mary and Joseph had gotten as far away as Jericho. Isn't it amazing that it takes one day to lose Jesus and three days to find him again? Mary and Joseph, that first day they got away around Jericho. From there, they would have had to turn to go all the way back to Jerusalem, which was no easy task because now, remember, they were going uphill, an ascent of about 3,000 feet. And this time along their way, I doubt they were singing the songs of ascent. I bet they were looking at each other and maybe pointing some fingers and sharing some concerns and some worries. Like, Mary, how could you have let him out of his sight? Well, Joseph, weren't you supposed to be watching him? Going back to Jerusalem to find Jesus. That second day, after that long climb where they were in Jerusalem, they still had not found Jesus. If you're a parent, you know what it's like to lose your child. I think every parent has probably lost their child at least once. You can correct me if I'm wrong afterwards. You know what it's like to lose a child. I'm not a parent, but I was there and saw what it's like to lose a child. You see, my mother was a single mom during this time, and it was my sister and I. I'm four and a half years older than my sister, and my sister was in first grade when this happened. Now, my mom taught piano at our elementary school uh, at Andrews University. She taught piano, and the two of us would play around after school while my mom was finishing her lessons. So Deirdre and I would go to different classes and play And then when it was time to go home, we go home. But this day, something was different. It was time to go home, so I went to look for my sister in Mrs. Kernut's room, who was a teacher. She had a little girl named Kelsey, who Deirdre was friends with. So I looked for her there, where I assumed she'd be, and she wasn't there. So we thought that's strange. So we started, we looked on the playground outside the school, no first grader Deirdre. So we, we started calling friends. No Deirdre. We looked in the room again at the school. No Deirdre. Started walking to the apartments. No Deirdre. Thought about going to the grocery store. No Deirdre. And my mom is just about ready to call the police because this was a Friday and school got down at noon and it's now five o'clock in the afternoon, and Deirdre is nowhere to be found. Mary was frantic. She probably thought, well, what would you do if you were 11? You got lost in a city this big. You see, Jerusalem wasn't a small little town. Jerusalem had a permanent population of about 50,000 people, but during Passover, it swelled to between 80,000 to 120,000 people. Imagine losing your 11-year-old in 120,000 people at the height of the holidays. What would Jesus do? Luke 2, verse 46. Now, so it was that after three days... 
they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. How many of you saw Home Alone 1 or Home Alone 2 a long time ago? Okay. You remember this little boy? He gets left alone, the first one at his home and the next in New York City. And while he's alone, he comes up with many interesting things to do. He protects his home from burglars. He protects a store from burglars. He meets some very fascinating strangers. But during this time, this little boy discovers that he is significant to his family, that they missed him, that they needed him. He had a significant place in his family. This little boy also discovered that he had a mission while, while they were gone. He had a mission. Jesus, those few days alone in Jerusalem, Jesus discovered his place in his family, and Jesus discovered his mission. Jesus was in the temple. Rabbinic school would have been held somewhere in those those hallways there behind the pillars, in the courtyard. They would have rabbinic schools. And Jesus would have been there sitting as one of the students on the ground in the midst of the teachers. Perhaps Gamaliel, Saul's future teacher, was there. Perhaps Simeon, son of the famous Hillel, was there. Perhaps a younger Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus was there. Rabbinic teaching consisted of questions and answers and responses. Now, Pastor Isaac and I get to go to fifth and sixth grade, and it's something we've really enjoyed doing. We ask the fifth and sixth graders, to write us questions that they want us to discuss together. And so they write all sorts of questions. And I've been so amazed at the questions that that they ask. We don't tell them what questions to ask. We just say, ask any question you want about God, life, the church, the universe, anything. And these are some of the questions that your fifth and sixth graders came up with just on Thursday. How was God just there before he created us? How are the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and God connected? What color is God's hair? If Jesus knew Satan was going to trick Adam and Eve, why did he make them? If God loves us, why does he let people die? Why, when someone slaps your cheek, turn and let them slap the other? Why doesn't God do big miracles like in the Bible anymore? How do I know I am going to heaven? When is God coming back? When will God start changing my life? Why does God love us? I've been amazed by the questions and the answers of your fifth and sixth graders at Mesa Grande. Luke 2, verse 47. This sixth grader was pretty amazing. It says, And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. The word translated astonished means giving the sense of thrown out of position or displaced. They were out of their minds. They were displaced, astonished, amazed. What was so amazing? Scripture doesn't say. But perhaps the difference is that Jesus had not been in the rabbinic schools. Jesus had been taught Scripture at home. 
And Jesus pointed to Scripture. Jesus pointed to Scripture. In the form of questions, Jesus raised truths about the mission of the Messiah as he was starting to discover what that was for himself. He talked about the suffering and death of the true Passover lamb of God. His questions opened their eyes to overlook truths about the coming of the Messiah and the prophecies and how it was near. The teachers were beside themselves, literally. And they weren't the only ones. Mary and Joseph finally show up. And the same word for amazed or astonished is used to describe Mary and Joseph's reaction. They were beside themselves. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Look at this picture of Mary and Joseph looking for Jesus. Now let's zoom in on Mary's face in the next one there. Anxiously looking. Son says they were astonished. They were all bent out of shape, as it were. They were displaced. They were astonished. And the reaction wasn't one, oh, oh, that's so nice. He's in the temple with the teachers, teaching them things. That's great. No, no, it was, son, why have you done this to us? We were looking for you anxiously. The word for anxious here literally means intense pain. Finally, my mother got a phone call. It was Mrs. Kernut. My mother had tried to call her several times saying, you're sure you don't have Deirdre? You're sure she didn't somehow, you didn't see her? And finally, Mrs. Kernut calls her back and says, we found her. You see, Deirdre and Kelsey had wanted to play more and they knew their mothers would say no on a Friday afternoon. And so Kelsey had said, there's a secret hiding place in my car. Oh, so they went, and in the trunk, there's this secret little hiding place. You open it up, and it's about the size of a tire. And so first grader Deirdre crawls in there, and they have a little secret code that's, that if anything goes wrong or she needs to get out, she was going to put her pinky in the hole and wiggle it. That would have been a great plan. Except Kelsey and Deirdre did not know that Mrs. Kernot had lots of Friday errands and shopping to do. Hours and hours and hours later, Deirdre is in the car in that little compartment for probably five or six hours. And finally, she is found. And my mom was very glad to see her and very mad as well. And as my mom recounts, not a word was spoken in the car on the way back home from the Kernut's house. My mom's reaction was probably like Mary's. Why have you done this to us? We were anxiously looking for you. We were in intense pain because of what you've done. Jesus turns the situation around with another question to his mother. Luke 2, 49, he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you know, not know that I must be about my father's business? Mary said, how could you do this to us? And Jesus said, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know where I was, what I'd be doing? Mary said, your father and I. And Jesus turns and says, 
my father's business. I'm about my father's business. He understands that he's God's son and that he has a mission, a purpose in this world. Have you discovered God's purpose for yourself? Look at this picture. God's purpose. That's what it's like to know God's purpose for your life. Jumping, jumping in. I asked our fifth and sixth graders to share their purpose. Um, before I do, there's another, there's another cartoon there about purpose. Of course you have a purpose in life. You pay taxes, don't you? Have you discovered your purpose beyond paying taxes? I asked our fifth and sixth graders to share their purpose and what they want to be when they grow up. Here it goes. Here's some of them. My purpose in life is to read people interesting books, to follow God, to help the needy, to play football, to make people laugh, and that was Lily, to tell people about God, to be a good friend, to play sports, to follow Jesus and be more like him, to help people when they're hurt or injured so when they walk out, they have a smile, to become a better person and get a great job and have a family with good kids like me. (laughs) Do you want to know who that was? Ryan, are you here? (laughs) I asked their permission, by the way. Help my family in their financial problems. To be the first girl president of the United States. To learn about God and be kind. To go to church every Sabbath. To take care of my brother and sister. To be a heart doctor. When I grow up, I want to be a photographer. To work for World Vision. An animal rescuer. A nurse. A wide receiver for the New England Patriots, Ethan. A private detective a pro motorcycle rider, a sixth grade teacher, a doctor, a video game designer, an accountant to help people who need food and houses, a chef that lives in Washington that runs a library, a museum, a restaurant owner or an astronaut, a lawyer, a Marine or Navy SEAL, then a psychiatrist, a pastor like Pastor Ciccarelli, and that was Daniel. Do you know what your purpose is? Mary and Joseph didn't get it. Verse 50. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. They didn't get it. But Jesus didn't give up on his parents. And he didn't give up on his purpose. Jesus' very first public words of ministry in Luke 4, 18 to 19, are the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus spent time alone with his father so that he could be aligned with his purpose. Luke 4, 42 to 43. When it was day, he went to a deserted place. And the crowd sought him. Jesus had this habit of disappearing, being missing. 
They came to him. They tried to keep him from leaving him. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. Because for this purpose, I have been sent. When we lose Jesus, when Jesus goes missing, when we're left with rituals and rules and right beliefs and relationships, when we lose Jesus, we also lose our purpose. We lose our mission in this world. We lose being part of his mission. You may have heard these words before. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point, let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, we will be more deeply imbued with his spirit. You might recognize these words as being from Ellen White, but what you might not know is that these words are found in the Desire of Ages, in the chapter that talks about this very story calling us back to spend time watching Jesus, seeing what he's doing in the world so that we can join him in his mission. Brickhouse Security has developed a new response to the whole baby Jesus theft phenomena. In 2009, they donated GPS devices to put in baby Jesus. That way... Churches and schools, if baby Jesus goes missing, they just track him with the GPS device on your computer or your cell phone, and you can, you can find baby Jesus. Where is Jesus for you this morning? Are you lost in the routine, the ritual, the rules, the right beliefs, the other relationships, but you're not sure where he is or what he's doing in the world? I invite you to develop your own GPS tracking device for Jesus. Every day, stop. Ask the question, where is he? Spend the time watching him, joining him in his mission in this world. Let's bow our heads. Dear Lord God, thank you for coming into this world. Thank you for being our Lord and Savior and our God. Lord, I pray that our walk with you will grow and grow. Lord, may we be dissatisfied with rituals, rules, right relationships, right beliefs, and may we seek you, Jesus, with all our heart and our strength and our soul. May we find you daily, and in you may we find our purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.